Good morning. We have breaking news from the Supreme Court. It is a landmark decision for the LGBTQ community. The justice is ruling that it is illegal for workers to be dismissed from a job based on sexual orientation and gender identity. The Supreme Court has blocked the Trump administration's efforts and their plan to roll back DACA. That means that DACA will remain in place for now. A historic week at the Supreme Court. Welcome to The Term. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court for Law 360 here in Washington. And joining me now from New York is Law 360 editor-at-large, Nally Rodriguez. Well, the blockbuster part of the Supreme Court term has officially begun. Um, On Monday, the court made it illegal to fire workers for being gay, lesbian, or transgender in a highly watched LGBT rights case. Um, We're going to be getting into that one in a little bit. But just this morning, the court also blocked the Trump administration from shutting down DACA. Joining us now to talk us through that decision, we have senior immigration reporter Suzanne Maniak. Thank you so much for joining us, Suzanne. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. Suzanne, can I just ask in in a top line, can you just summarize quickly what the court did uh, this morning, Thursday morning in its very highly anticipated DACA decision? Yeah, so essentially the Supreme Court is allowing DACA to survive, at least this time around. They held that they do have the authority to review the administration's decision to end the program, and in doing so, that the administration did not offer enough explanation when it decided to terminate it, um, making it arbitrary and capricious. So I think the key to understanding this like very procedural ruling is kind of understanding the backstory to how we got to this point in the Supreme Court. Um, so can you kind of just tee up that process and why the Supreme Court said what it said? Yeah. So I think what's important to note about this ruling is it's not about the legality of DACA. It's about whether the Trump administration properly rescinded it. And so that really centers on the explanations that Homeland Security officials have given for its rescission. First, a memo issued by former acting Homeland Security Secretary Elaine Duke, and then later a follow-up memo issued by then Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen offering further explanation. And so Um, that original Duke memo, it was like very bare bones is how people have described it. And so that kind of triggered immediate legal challenges, right? Right. It was brief. um, And ultimately a judge ordered Kirsten Nielsen, who was at the time the Homeland Security Secretary by then, to write a new memo and offer new explanation, which she did. Um, But ultimately, in this ruling, the Supreme Court concluded that, you know, the Nielsen memo was an after-the-fact rationalization and not properly before it to consider. And so it really only looked at the Elaine Duke memo when it determined that the administration did not offer enough explanation to justify rescinding DACA at this time. So they've sent the case back to the Department of Homeland Security to consider if it wants to offer new reasoning for terminating the program. So the case is basically still alive, and there's a way for DACA to potentially be shuttered down down the line. Is that right? Uh, Yeah, that's correct. Technically, the Trump administration could, if it wants to, redo its reasoning, go back through the program and try to terminate it again. And in the meantime, it's being pretty much celebrated as a big, if temporary, win for the hundreds of thousands of DACA recipients. And just remind us again about this program and how you know important it is to the lives of so many young immigrants who came here as children. Right. So the DACA program provides um, deportation protection and work permits to, as you said, um, hundreds of thousands of young immigrants uh, without legal status. The average age of a DACA recipient today is about 26. And on average, they came to the U.S. when they were seven years old. So for many of these people, the U.S. is the only country that they know is home. But the decision is still a huge victory for DACA recipients who, if the high court had ruled the other way, might have been immediately vulnerable to deportation, even amid a global pandemic. 
And that was kind of part of the court's decision today that in its original rationale, right, they didn't unpack how big of a deal DACA was for so many people. And that's kind of why it was an insufficient rationale. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what, what Robert said in his majority opinion? That's right. Sort of at the core of this opinion was the issue of reliance interests and how when Obama created the program in 2012, it had engendered reliance interests, or in other words, you know, created a situation where so many people really depended on the program, you know, to live in the U.S., uh, the only country that so many of these immigrants even know. So, you know, that was kind of at the heart of this decision was that in the Duke memo, um, there was now not enough consideration given to the effect this would have on so many people for Trump to just end the program as he did. So this was uh, not a clear-cut 5-4 ruling. Uh, it was, you know, can you talk us through kind of uh, some of the divisions and fracturing of the decision? Right. So it was 5-4 in that five of the justices said that they that the Trump administration would not be allowed to rescind the program, and the dissenting four said that they would have allowed it. But it wasn't such a clean split. Um, the majority had held that while the rescission did term- violate the Administrative Procedure Act um, and that it was arbitrary and capricious, the majority also did not believe that the rescission violated the Equal Protection Clause and that it had been motivated by racism, which is something that some of the advocates had pursued at the lower courts. That was on one issue that Justice Sotomayor dissented on. Um, while she agreed with the core holding, she said that she would have allowed that equal protection claim to proceed in, at the lower court. Additionally, the conservative justices who said that they would have allowed the Trump administration to rescind the program um, did so for somewhat different reasons. In a dissent authored by Justice Clarence Thomas and joined by Alito and Gorsuch, um, Thomas said that he would have allowed the Trump administration to rescind the program because Elaine Duke's reasoning was sufficient in his view. He also thought that the program itself was illegal. Yeah, and he had some pretty fiery language. Uh, Here's one quote from him when he said, today's decision must be recognized for what it is, an effort to avoid a politically controversial but legally correct decision. Kind of like impugning Chief Justice Roberts' motives as being like, you know, you're you're not brave enough to come out with the legally correct decision on this. So that's so I thought that was really interesting. But but Kavanaugh had his he wrote separately like he did on um, Monday, which we'll be talking about later. But Kavanaugh wrote separately. What was his deal? Yeah. So he said sort of that he thought the Nielsen opinion, the Nielsen memo justifying the DACA rescission should have been sufficient. And he sort of disagreed with the majority's decision to disregard that as an after the fact rationalization that shouldn't be considered. Yeah. And he seems to think that like, this really is temporary. And I think what he says is the only practical consequence of what the court did today appears to be some delay. Like, you know, they can just go right around, you know, all the things that uh, Roberts said that they didn't do and just do it right again. But as you said in the beginning, it's 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 kind of a it's a whole new question. I mean, the election's coming up pretty quickly. It's like it's not totally clear to anyone whether or not the Trump administration is going to be able to do it. Right. Right. No, as Kavanaugh said, um, I think his words, his words were he worried that the Trump administration would just go back and relabel and reiterate the substance of the Nielsen memo, um, perhaps with some elaboration. Um, So, yeah, exactly. As you said, you know, he was saying, what is the point of doing this? They could just send it back and, you know, issue the same rationalization. Great. Well, Suzanne, thank you so much for coming on and helping us unpack this uh, pretty, pretty messy opinion from the court today. Thanks again for having me on. 
Also this week, on Monday, the Supreme Court ruled that it is now illegal to fire someone for being gay or transgender. It is the biggest LGBTQ rights victory since the court legalized same-sex marriage around the country in the 2015 Obergefell decision. Uh, Just quickly, in a 6-3 ruling, the court ruled that a ban on sex discrimination in Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act necessarily includes LGBTQ discrimination as well. Justice Neil Gorsuch and Chief Justice John Roberts um, were two conservatives that joined the liberal justices for that 6-3 to three vote with um, Justices Samuel Alito, Clarence Thomas, and Brett Kavanaugh in dissent. This was a very big ruling that a lot of people were kind of not expecting to come out on Monday. Yeah, I, I, I think it's really fair to say that this one stunned a lot of court watchers and, and frankly, I think the public at large uh, to see it come down. Now, I know that, you know, the ruling came down um, and involved three Title VII cases. Jimmy, can you walk us through how the court decided that Title VII prohibits LGBTQ discrimination via these three cases? Yeah, so just a little bit of background on those cases. They involved, they came from different parts of the country, but they all involved either gay or transgender workers who said that they were fired for their sexual orientation or gender identity. And so there was a circuit split on whether Title VII, um, this is the landmark provision of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, whether the prohibition in Title VII of discrimination, quote, because of sex, also includes LGBTQ discrimination. And so these cases had come through the pipeline for years, but the circuit courts had come to different readings, originally rejecting these cases outright. But in late in recent years, they've actually been more accommodating to that broader reading of Title VII. And so this thing came up to the Supreme Court after some division among the lower courts, and, and the court ruled overwhelmingly in favor of the LGBTQ employees here, saying that, yes, discriminating against someone for being gay or transgender is at least in part discriminating against someone because of their sex. And I'll just read a a quick passage from Justice Gorsuch's opinion here. He says, Today we must decide whether an employer can fire someone simply for being homosexual or transgender. The answer is clear. An employer who fires an individual for being homosexual or transgender fires that person for traits or actions it would not have questioned in members of a different sex. And he says, sex plays a necessary and undistinguishable role in that decision, exactly what Title VII forbids. So I think what took a lot of folks by surprise on Monday was to see Justice Neil Gorsuch, you know, join the majority and pen the opinion. Um, But, you know, not exactly what was expected from the conservative Trump appointee. But uh, Jimmy, you wrote a piece uh, saying that it could have something to do with his textualist philosophy. So I was hoping you could kind of talk us through that one. Well, first, I, I want to point out that Gorsuch did not pull his kind of broad reading of Title VII out of thin air. I mean, this is something that LGBTQ rights litigators had pushed for years, this theory that the uh, statute's discrimination or the statute's prohibition on discrimination because of sex includes LGBTQ discrimination, although they've had limited success in the lower courts until only recently. Um, But once those cases reached the Supreme Court, um, attorneys representing the workers and even like a ton of outside amicus briefs really focused in on winning Gorsuch's vote because of his 
textualist philosophy. So that's his judicial method of statutory interpretation, interpreting laws, where he has maintained for a long time, most of his career, that in or- when you're doing statutory interpretation, you have to look primarily to the words of the statute. It's actual text um, rather than other extra textual uh, authorities, as they say. Like, for instance, in the Title VII case, what these legislators in 1964 were thinking about when they were thinking about the meaning of a uh, prohibition on discrimination based on sex. And so a number of attorneys I talked to said, yeah, and when we were representing this case uh, on the briefs, we were for sure reading Justice Gorsuch's views and past decisions, and we were gunning for his vote. Um, I talked to one professor, a Yale Law professor, William Eskridge, who wrote um, an interesting amicus brief specifically on this textualism issue, and he says, you know, the first, the number one audience for my brief was uh, Neil Gorsuch, and number two was Justice Gorsuch, and number three was Gorsuch J. I mean, he really was uh, the prime bull here for you know a lot of the, uh, the the attorneys for the petitioners and but it wasn't until the cases came up for oral arguments in October that it seemed like the strategy might be working when Justice Gorsuch made a number of interesting comments at oral arguments suggesting that he was pretty open to this textualist argument when a case is really close really close on the textual evidence and I Assume for the moment, I'm, yeah. I'm with you on the textual evidence. It's close, okay? We're, we're not talking about extra textual stuff. We're talking about the text. It's close. A judge finds it very close. At the end of the day, should he or she take into consideration the massive social upheaval that would be entailed in such a decision? Well, it seems like it paid off. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in his ruling, he adopts basically the same logic um, that the petitioners had put forward in their briefs. He talks about what happens when an employer fires an employee for having, a, for instance, a female wife. Well, if the employee is a man, that employee will not be fired. Um, but if the employee is a woman, if you're firing someone on the basis of LGBTQ discrimination, you're firing that employee because she's a woman. It's a but-for cause. You would not have fired her if she were not a woman. So that's why he says that it clearly falls under the terms of the statute. The plain language creates a but-for causation standard that is met whenever you discriminate against someone for being gay or transgender. Now, I understand Justice Alito, who often takes you know original intent uh, perhaps to be a more of a concern, uh, was not happy with the majority on this one. Uh, can you talk us through his dissent? It was a fiery dissent by Justice Alito, um, not unlike um, the rhetoric we saw out of Thomas today in the DACA case. But he basically says that Justice Gorsuch, what he's doing is like, fake textualism you know so justice gorsuch for years prided himself on being kind of an acolyte to um justice antonin scalia who was perhaps the most famous textualist of all on the supreme court but justice alito says the court's opinion is like a pirate ship it sails under a textualist flag but what it actually represents is a theory of statutory interpretation that justice scalia excoriated the theory that courts should quote update old statutes so that they better reflect the current values of society. And it, that was just one of several choice quotes. I mean, he called it preposterous, brazen, illogical, etc. What? And he, he definitely opened up the meanie um, section of the thor- thesaurus to describe Justice Gorsuch's <laughs> majority opinion here. But yeah, Kavanaugh wrote a m- much more mild-mannered opinion in which he also dissented, but he said, you know, I'm, 
I really think this is something for the Congress to do. And even though you know I disagree on the merits with what the court did, I do applaud you know the LGBTQ rights litigators for so many years of you know bringing this fight, and they can be they can take pride in today's result, is what he said. Well, I, I know, you know, the broad implications of this ruling really just can't be denied. We've had our colleagues kind of writing about it earlier in this week. Um, Ryan Boyson wrote about how it bodes well for transgender women uh, fighting a parallel legal battle to establish their right to compete on women's sports teams. And Emily Brill wrote um, a great story about how employee health plans must cover treatments for transgender workers, uh, such as hormone replacement therapy and gender transition surgery. Yeah, this ruling is nothing if not broad, and Justice Gorsuch says as much. But at the same time, he he's careful to point out that the decision is just about these three fired these three workers who was claiming they were fired for being gay or transgender, and he doesn't want to touch on the broader policy, social policy battle swirling around um, transgender individuals using bathrooms or locker rooms or sex-specific dress codes. He says those are cases for another day. And he also leaves room for kind of a broad carve-out here for a religious exemption to the court's holding. He says, quote, we're also deeply concerned with preserving the promise of the free exercise of religion enshrined in our con- Constitution. That guarantee lies at the heart of our pluralistic society and says those are questions for future cases too. So you could totally see that this issue is far from over. I mean, this will continue to be litigated as it arises in not only different contexts, but as employers are bringing these religious freedom claims. And he was careful to point out that those religious exemptions were not at issue here. They were not raised by the party. So this one was just to the facts of these three cases. So both the DACA and Title VII decisions were the ones that were, I think, top of our list uh, to watch. And uh, Jimmy, you and I are officially out as fortune tellers because we had been predicting them to be the last cases of the term, uh, which is not what happened. Yeah. Do me a favor, listener, and do not go and listen back to our pretty off-the-mark predictions in last (laughs) week's episode when we kind of mapped out the remainder of the term. Although I I think we did provide some caveats that like, you know, maybe we'll get them all tomorrow (laughs) or something like that. So for sure, I will be retiring from uh, SCOTUS fortune teller because I just do not know what goes on behind those closed doors. And I honestly, I think it's kind of a nice reminder that we actually don't know what's going to happen in a lot of the remaining cases this term from Trump taxes to abortion to any of the other number of major blockbusters that still need to be decided. But we'll definitely be back next week uh, to talk about just what's next in in the pipeline. Um, I know opinions are expected on Monday and we'll see if the court adds uh, some more days uh, between now and the end of the term. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporters, Suzanne Moniak, Braden Campbell, and Ryan Boyson. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 and the term. Thanks for listening.